Peter Newman is the chief scientist at the SRI International Computer Science Lab. He is also the moderator of the ACM Risks Forum. This is Peter Newman. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right, uh, Peter, thanks for joining me today. Very good. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so before I started recording, we were just talking about how um, you all are trying to revolutionize computer systems. Uh, can, can you provide a little bit of insight on uh, who you all is and w what exactly you're trying to revolutionize? Yeah, I all or me all or whatever it is, uh, is, uh, is basically a, uh, a group of uh, professors and students at Cambridge, University of Cambridge in England, and uh, SRI. And in the last couple of years, we've had uh, a lot of uh, interest from ARM, which is one of the uh, uh, real uh, creators of, of uh, rugged, uh, robust uh, chip sets and uh, specifications for hardware. Uh, we've had interest from uh, Microsoft and a few others, uh, but we are basically building new hardware, new software on top of it that understands the hardware. Um, and uh, to a large extent, this started out with uh, worrying about all of the C code that uh, was riddled with security flaws. Uh, Microsoft has suggested that uh, at least 70% of their uh, list of uh, vulnerabilities are memory management vulnerabilities. And we figured out a way to, uh, to prevent most of those from occurring, especially in the C language, or C++, um, with, with a, uh, an architecture that uh, is, is quite different from what is commercially available today but which is a throwback to a lot of the research that was done in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s on capability architectures, which uh, Butler Lampson, who's one of the stars of computer technology, once uh, remarked that capabilities are the way of the future and they always will be. And mm -hmm. I think we're, we're trying to show that the capability architecture is in fact capable uh, with very fine grained access control uh, and efficient uh, use and uh, compilers that understand the hardware and, and uh, effectively block the uh, uh, flaws that would be otherwise created uh, from occurring. Uh, that, that combination of hardware, software, compilers uh, and uh, application compartmentalization uh, altogether provides the ability to prevent a great many of the errors, uh, either intrinsically because of the hardware software architecture or because the programming practice uh, can be made simpler and, uh, and more efficient uh, as a result. This is the Cherry architecture, capability hardware for risk instructions. And it's a risk architecture. There's an open source version of it uh, in RISC-V, Cherry RISC-V. There is a uh, Cherry ARM version of it uh, emerging in uh, the Morello uh, board that has been prototyped by ARM. 
and there is uh, uh, there are a few other possibilities there that are emerging. So we we are something like in our eleventh year of working on this project again jointly with, with the University of Cambridge, and uh, it's beginning to look like maybe it uh, it might actually get into the real world. And one of the questions, because I, I sent uh, just to sort of break the the fourth wall here, I guess. I, I to, when I'm asking a guest to be on the show, I normally send a list of questions beforehand. I send you know sample questions, and one of the questions I, I sent, um, and which you were very honest that you know does not represent uh, the risks, um, it does not represent a good understanding of the risks on my part. Um, but I was curious because you're talking about how you all are um, trying to prevent the memory management errors from occurring. Yeah. Which is where, you know, as you said, the vast majority of security exploits come from. Why is a language like Rust, which is new and which at least claims to, um, by the standards of its language, enforce... Um, safe memory management, uh, prevent buffer overflows. Um, is, is Rust, do you see that as being a, a viable solution to some of those fixes? Well, that, that is a software only solution. And what we're trying to make, the point we're trying to make is that if you can't trust the hardware, you can't trust the software. Mm. And when you look at a voting machine, uh, they're saying, oh, the software is perfect. Don't worry about it. Uh, but you can't trust the hardware. And the hardware is compromisable, as you've seen recently with uh, supply chain attacks, uh, as we had in, uh, in recent days, um, and in Stuxnet, where there was an air gap between the, uh, the front-end computers and, and the, uh, uh, the actual uh, equipment. Um, you have to understand that this is not a software problem. All of the people who have tried to build secure systems, and I'm one of them, uh, who uh, have had software only, um, are in trouble because you can't trust the hardware. Uh, my background goes back to Multics in 1965, right. where we solved the buffer overflow problem. Uh, the stack frame uh, was executable, and anything that was outside of the, the stack frame was not executable as a combination of hardware and software. And so there were no buffer overflows in the stack. Yeah. And it was, it was basically uh, ruled out in the fundamental design because it was a principal design. And we started out with the idea that, uh, hey, we can solve some of these problems. We solved the buffer overflow problem in 65. We solved the Y2K problem in 65, except for COBOL, of course. Uh, but uh, we had a, uh, a microsecond clock, and uh, that meant that uh, it didn't expire until this century. I don't think there are any multic systems around anymore. But that was a system in which the hardware had been designed specifically for the kind of operating system that uh, we were going to build. This is Bell Labs and, and Honeywell and, and primarily MIT. Um, and the guy who really was responsible for that was Ted Glazer, who was a wizard. Uh, he was blind and he had greater foresight than anybody I've ever known in my entire lifetime. 
And uh, he was a guy who designed the hardware in such a way that it could implement the kinds of things that we wanted to do. This was uh, real segmentation and, uh, and paging and all kinds of other things, hierarchical directories, which we invented back in 65. Um, and uh, so that was an attempt to do a, a clean slate architecture where you built the hardware and the software together with an understanding of what the hardware had to do to protect the software from being compromised. Uh, I tried again in, in 73 uh, with something that we did for the National Security Agency. It was a, uh, a capability architecture that attempted to provide formal proofs of properties from the very basis of the specifications of the hardware up into the operating system. And of course, it was 20 or 30 years ahead of its time because the, the formal proof tools were not ready to do that. But there was another example in my, in my life of uh, attempting to have hardware that could protect the software. Uh, Intel came along with the 432. Uh, there were a bunch of other, Plessy had a, 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 a capability architecture. And there's been lots and lots of capability systems over the years, but most, a lot of them were software only. And what we're trying to do this time around is to do it right in a way that we really can prove properties about the hardware. Uh, we have proved uh, already uh, things that show that the um, instruction set architecture of the Cherry architecture uh, satisfies certain critical properties. And those are, those are formal proofs of specifications that are formally specified. Now, I, I looked at your, uh, your past podcasts, a lot of them were non-technical, and I'm, I'm starting to wander into technical stuff. Not at I, all. No, I'm happy. I, I, just, I just wanted to get on, the, on the, uh, the ground here some of the basis of what was going on. The IBM 3067, for example, uh, attempted to do what Multics had done, except they mismanaged the, the segmentation. The segmentation was just one gigantic virtual address space rather than the compartmented segments of multics, each of which was separately protectable, separately nameable. And you could guarantee that there were no um, uh, overflows from one segment to the next, whereas in, in the IBM system, you could uh, address over the end of the segment and get the next segment because it was one linear address space. So we have, we have tried to learn the lessons of, uh, of my past history of, of uh, 75 years or so, however, 70, uh, too many, too many years, whatever, how long ago it was, 1953, when I started worrying about trustworthy systems. Um, and try to make something that was as principled as Multics. Uh, Multics had the wonderful uh, principles that were done by uh, Jerry Seltzer and, and Michael Schroeder, and then later updated by uh, Franz Kaschik as well. Um, and I think the Cherry architecture is the most principled system ever conceived in that it inherently, either inherently satisfies those, pr those principles or explicitly tries to satisfy them because of the architecture. And in some cases, we've discovered that we were inadvertently satisfying some of the principles without even thinking about them. 
because of the principal nature of the architecture. So this is all well and good. People say, well, yeah, but what do I do? What do I do with all that C code out there? Right. Uh, the answer is, well, uh, we're actually preventing uh, most of the problems in, in the memory management. Uh, we have a way of dealing with uh, uh, very fine grained access control because if you don't have a capability for a particular uh, piece of virtual memory or a particular object, um, you cannot access it. And there are, prin there are principles and properties uh, such as uh, um, there's non-bypassability. Every operation requires presence of a capability that is appropriate. Uh, the capabilities are non-monotonic in the sense that you can't take a given capability and increase the access that it has and a bunch of other properties like that. And, and we can actually prove that those properties are satisfied by the instructions that are contained. Mm. So there, there is what we were calling, and others have called, a clean slate architecture, where you're starting from the hardware. You're building hardware that can do things that most other processors cannot. You're showing that the software that's built on top of it can take advantage of those properties. For example, the, the compartmentalization, where we can isolate uh, one application from another, or we can app uh, we can isolate the various components within the architect within the application uh, from each other. So your your cell phone uh, app that you just loaded in doesn't have access to all of your uh, contact list, for example, or it doesn't have access to things that it doesn't need. And this is the concept of uh, the principle of least privilege, where you only give access to what is needed. And then you build the, the system in such a way that you can run legacy code in a sandbox uh, a compartment hmm. where the compartment is guaranteed uh, systemically from having uh, access to anything else that, other than what is given. It's given a few capabilities and that's all. And by virtue of the architecture, it's prevented from accessing anything else. Let, let me ask you. Yes. Um, I, I'm curious about, you know, it, okay, even, even saying that, as, as you've done, prove um, the security of, of this hardware, um, of, of a clean slate architecture. What about, it seems to me like a big problem is getting it adopted by industry and by yeah, government. That's a, that's a massive problem. And we've been working with that uh, for the past uh, five, six years now um, in trying to find ways of getting this into, into the mainstream. Uh, we're, we're part way there, we're not done yet. Do you worry at all, uh, one of the issues that came up uh, in the past few years was that the NSA, for instance, yeah. was discovering exploits in, say, Microsoft, and then not telling anybody about them, saying, yeah, that, okay, we're going to use that's, that's clearly a problem. Right. Uh, there's a, a book by Nicole Perleroth that is just out, and that has a long title that I'm not going to make here. But it's a book on, on uh, what NSA has done in the past, and, and uh, some of that was uh, considered uh, um, not uh, not playing the game uh, the way uh, other people would like it to play. On the other hand, that is a game that every nation is playing. 
And the fundamental problem here, I think, is that the, uh, the U.S. has believed that our stuff is better than everybody else's. And clearly it isn't. We have the, the wonderful uh, hack of, of the Office of Personnel Management where everybody who had a uh, top secret clearance had all of their um, personal information, um, ex-wives, mistresses, drug habits, uh, uh, all, all the things you might imagine uh, uh, that the, uh, the, the, um, the process of getting a clearance would, would require is now in the hands of the Chinese government. And uh, for, for espionage reasons, for hiring of, of uh, uh, double agents, uh, for co-opting people who uh, didn't want all that private information known, um, I think there's a, a gigantic problem there. So the idea that we are able to protect uh, our systems, hardware that does not secure, operating systems and applications that are not secure um, is rather fatuous. Uh, the problem is that uh, if every nation in the world can break our systems, then the idea that uh, we can do offensive in information warfare and offensive uh, attacks um, without any retribution is utter nonsense. So I think we're, we're in a position where uh, the, the, the governments of the world have a problem and the populations of the world have a different problem. It's the privacy problem more than it is and the integrity problem. You cannot guarantee that your own operating system has not been compromised. You cannot guarantee that your hardware has not been compromised. And we had this very interesting situation in the, in the 2020 election where I have been maintaining for, well, my book was back in 85 and the, uh, the software engineering notes started in 76. I've been maintaining since 76 that all of the risks that uh, have been happening uh, in security, reliability, availability, survivability, uh, everything else um, are continually being repeated because we're not learning the lessons that we should have learned from the past failures. And the result of that is that we are in a, uh, I think a very weak position um, and anybody who's using our system is in a weak position. Our, not our systems, plural, not, not ours, but uh, right. the, the ones that are commercially available. And so you asked uh, way back about Rust and, and, um, and uh, you didn't ask about Java, uh, but Java is a language that uh, was uh, before Rust and, and claimed to be perfectly secure. I remember when uh, the, um, the creator of it came to a workshop that I was co-running at SRI years ago. And he said, this is absolutely perfect. Nobody can, can do anything that's not secure. Well, that's obviously nonsense because you, you have the ability from Java to escape into native client. Uh, you have the ability to execute all kinds of things that are not protected by, by Java. So Java is a language that is purported to be secure. Rust is a language that purports to be secure, except there's an there's a insecure subset of it. Uh, and there is a, a sort of a subset of, of Rust that could be called uh, memory safe. But in general, 
uh, you're not going to get any solution out of programming languages alone hmm. uh, unless you can trust the hardware. And that's also a problem with, with uh, uh, SEL4, for example, uh, which is a formally proven microkernel, um, but it has to trust the hardware underneath it. And uh, that is a fundamental problem that keeps biting us because people come and say, well, I've got this perfect capability system that nobody can break, uh, but it's software only. So the real, the real problem here is if you, if you believe you are trusting that the hardware is perfect, uh, you are making a mistake. Uh, now, in general, nothing is perfect. And as we're discovering, we have all the, the supply chain problems. We have uh, uh, emanation problems. We have covert channels that are not covered by any of the specifications. And uh, when, when you can leak information, um, the, the Russian embassy in, in Moscow was the American embassy in Moscow, I should say, is a classic example where they basically had uh, echoic panels that could be picked up uh, sonically from a distance um, without any electronics. So uh, the uh, American folks went in and did, scanned the whole embassy and, and found no electromagnetic uh, sensors or, or uh, uh, emanations. And yet the acoustic thing was emanating uh, quite uh, noticeably when they finally figured out that the, the embassy had been built with walls that were acoustically uh, uh, detectable. So you think about what you have to protect against. And the classical problem is that you have to protect against everything because people who want to break your system are clever and they're generally cleverer than the people who are designing the systems. So we're not, we're not saying Cherry is perfect. We're just saying that it, it solves a lot of problems that, that people haven't solved before. Uh, again, I go back to, to the buffer overflow problem. That, that's an easy one to solve once you have a decent architecture and hardware. And that was what Multics did back in 65. But the entire uh, corporation, the corporate view of, of computer build, building is you want to cut corners wherever you can. Right. That, of course, led to speculative execution and out-of-order execution and things like that, where you could uh, add, you could take things that were speculatively uh, brought in, loaded, um, and discover that they wouldn't have been permitted, but they were there nevertheless, and, and you could gain access to things that were supposed to be not accessible. So when you look at all of these potential problems, you have to realize that the attacker only has to find one or two or a few things that can be broken and the defender has to protect against a an enormous list of things most of which are not even known in, in the public i won't say most but a lot of of which are potential sources of, of problems well, here's, I suppose, part of what I'm, I'm getting at, because you mentioned how the corporate view of things is to cut corners and the governments of the world want, they want to be able to use, uh, to attack um, without being attacked. And yeah. those two things are, it's... They're, they're incompatible. Yes. 
Um, the, the argument that keeps coming up is uh, the law enforcement folks would like a backdoor in just about everything right. so that they can access it. And what they keep forgetting is that if they can access it, then so can the Russians and the, the Chinese and any, any uh, self-respecting hacker who can figure out how to, how to break it. Uh, this, is, this is known as security by obscurity and uh, it does, generally does not work. Right. Sooner or later, it gets broken. It, how do you break that worldview then and, and impress upon the governments of the world? Hey, look, you, I know you're not going to be able to spy quite as easily as you would like to or enforce your laws quite as easily as you would like yeah. to. Well, I've, I've been through three generations of, of, the, uh, of the so-called crypto wars. Um, the first one had to deal with export controls and the government believed that they could stamp out the flow of cryptography across the world uh, by making it uh, classified, for example, uh, or with export controls that would prevent our, our good cryptography from leaking out. What nobody seems to remember is that if you can't trust the hardware, you can't trust the cryptography. Right? I mean, you may not be able to break the cryptographic algorithm or the implementation, but you may be able to find that the, the, the secret key is stored in main memory, in which case you don't need to break the cryptography. Right. And again, if you don't have a secure system to begin with, um, the, the, uh, the system is easily broken, whether there's good cryptography or not. So I think the the, uh, the three three generations of crypto wars where the law enforcement folks keep coming back and say we need backdoors we need backdoors we need the ability to break everything. Uh, now they're they're going after the applications rather than the operating systems and the hardware, um, which would help them considerably, but it would also help the the, uh, the opponents because they would pretty quickly figure out how to how to break it. Uh, we've had cases, uh, Matt Blaze, for example, uh, in the second crypto wars where, where there was a, a classified algorithm for cryptography uh, and key escrow. And he managed to break the key escrow uh, mechanism without having any access to the specification or an implementation uh, just by uh, um, playing around. So there, there's an example of, uh, of a very serious thing which completely demolished the, uh, the notion of that implementation of key escrow. I once had a, a friend who said, oh yeah, we knew about that one, but we didn't think anybody would find it. Wow. And Matt Blaze found it without uh, any access to uh, secret information. So I, I think the, the lesson here, I, I didn't want to get into, into the computer stuff so, so deeply, but uh, I think the, the bottom line here is simply that if you can't trust the hardware, you can't trust the software and you can't trust the applications and you can't trust the people who are using the system anyway. And uh, this makes it a very difficult problem. So the, the idea is what can you do to minimize the risks that you have? Now, when I, when I talk about trustworthy systems, I'm, I'm really talking about uh, system survivability and human safety and uh, reliability and 
robustness and resilience and predictable interoperability and predictable usability and all sorts of things like that. If a system is going to be trustworthy, it has to be resilient to almost everything that can go wrong, whether it's squirrels chewing through cables or, or um, uh, somebody pulling the plug on a heart monitor um, or plugging the, um, the thing. Uh, there, there was one case of a, a plug that was actually the wall plug, but this was a, 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 a heart thing that when it was plugged in, it killed the patient. And the, the cleaning person came in and found this plug that was not plugged in, and so it was plugged in, and that was the end of the patient. Wow. Bad, bad design where you have the wrong plug interface, so it can be plug in, plugged into a, a yeah. <laughs> standard outlet. Uh, that, that's just bad design. And if you look at all of the stuff that I've been documenting in, in the ACM Risks Forum, there are a ton of things where it's just stupidity on the part of the, of the user. But on the other end, there's a lot of cases where the user is blamed uh, for the Tesla or the uh, various other airplane crashes, uh, where in fact it was bad software or it was bad hardware or uh, something else happened that, uh, that had not been anticipated. And it's this black swan problem of when you design something, you've got to design it for the worst possible things that can happen. Yeah. And what we tend to do is we, we ignore most of those things. I think you'll find if you, if you look at the, the history of, of all of the horror, horror cases that I've documented since, uh, uh, what was it, 76, um, then you'll find that a lot of them were uh, trying to blame one person or one company for the failure, when in fact, uh, in some cases, it was a very widely distributed number of things that went wrong. And uh, that's, 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 a, that's a worry because you think, oh, we fixed this one problem. Now we're okay now, right? Uh, the answer is usually no. Okay, now you want to get on to some other subjects? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about other things sure. as well. I'm, okay, well, I, I just wanted to, it, it's what you're describing, it reminds me of, uh, you know, speaking of having uh, a, a wide variety of guests on this program, I had a guy who survived 76 days adrift at sea and yep. his boat capsized uh, yep. in the Atlantic Ocean. And he was very creative. Yes, he was. <laughs> and um, he... When his boat first got hit and it started flooding with water, yep. he said there was a moment where he, he thought to himself, man, I just want to go back to sleep. And in other words, just pretend the problem didn't exist. Yeah. How much of this is just human psychology or, or business considerations where some CIO is saying, listen, just don't tell me that this problem exists. Then that means it's my problem and I have to well, do the, the first thing. Remember the, the uh, Christy McAuliffe shuttle launch? Right. Where Roger Boisjolais said, don't let this thing launch under freezing conditions. The O-rings will not hold. And he was told uh, that, uh, well, President Reagan wants to announce tomorrow morning that uh, Christine McAuliffe has been put into space and uh, first time for, for a woman and uh, that uh, it was a done deal and that's gonna happen. Doesn't matter if, if the O-ring is gonna fail. 
Okay, that's one case. Another another case was was the uh, uh, the Aegis shoot down the Vincennes uh, shooting down an Iranian Airbus, where the um, um, uh, the the software, the Aegis software, misidentified the commercial airliner as a fighter plane. And it turned out that uh, when uh, at one point the, uh, the two planes were collinear with the radar and it picked up the wrong friend foe identifier, picked up the fighter plane and not the commercial flight and shot down the, the uh, commercial Airbus. Um, I once gave a talk at, at Carnegie Mellon about the um, the human interface to that thing. It was this tiny little postage stamp screen, which had all the, the identifier stuff on it. And, and then there's a big picture with, with all of this stuff that's going on, planes and, and whatever. And um, the, the design of the, um, of the little box, the little screen, was that you didn't know whether the object that was coming at you was going up or down and what the rate of change was. Okay, so that was that was considered to be the real problem that the operator didn't know that this plane, this plane was taking off and it was flying at increasing altitude um, way above where it would uh, have shot down the, the Vincennes. I gave a talk explaining that and a friend of mine who was uh, actually a graduate student of one of my colleagues um, said, Peter, I'm sorry, I've got to interrupt you. I'm the guy who wrote that code. He was working for an uh, a, a aerospace company in Los Angeles at the time. And he said, I, I recognized that this stuff that should have been the, the Z dot information, the, the rate of change of, of altitude uh, up or down should have been on the screen. And I told my manager that, and he said, "Well, don't uh, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, we're not going to let anybody know. And if if the government wants to add that, they can uh, uh, ask for a, 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 another increment to the software, and we'll have to charge them more for it. Yeah. But don't tell anybody. Okay. Now here's an example of of putting your head in the sand and pretending you're an ostrich or whatever ostriches do." Yeah. And um, there, there's just one more example of, of, well, don't tell anybody or, or don't worry about the, the fact that the O-ring is going to blow in, in freezing temperature. And yes, it is a problem with people sticking their heads in the sand and saying, well, maybe that'll go away. No, it doesn't go away. Maybe uh, somebody else will fix it if it's not our problem. Um, no somebody else is going to find it and, and possibly exploit it. So your question is a wonderful question. I love it. And it got me off on five minutes of, uh, of examples of, of why that's a bad thing to do. No, that's good. Actually, Peter, can, can I ask you something? Can, can you, uh, if it's possible, turn the music down in the background just a little? I can do that. Thank you. I asked you at first, first whether you could hear I, it. I know I didn't hear it at first. That's, that's my bad. I'll, I'll, turn, I'll turn it off. Thank you. Lovely background, though. 
And therein lies a, lies a fable. A fable <laughs> is that you think you can't, and somebody else can't hear you doing something. Yes. And there's an example of, I had my FM classical music station on very, very low. Um, and you could hear it. Now think about, think about the, the Russian, uh, the embassy in Moscow, or think about uh, situations where you're in a, in a, in a bar with, uh, with a spy and, and you're saying you're speaking very, very softly. And it turns out that uh, there's a microphone under the table. Uh, you've been compromised. Did you think about that before you were stupid enough to go into the bar and, and uh, pretend you're a spy, even if you're a double agent or whatever? It doesn't make any difference. No. Um, the answer is there are any assumption you make these days is likely to be false. Um, there's a potential for that. Yeah. And that's an, obviously a much too broad a statement because I think if, if you're in uh, if you're in a uh, uh, an echoic chamber and uh, you have built it yourself and you know what you're doing, uh, you might say, well, nobody's going to hear anything that goes on in that chamber. On the other hand, if somebody else built the chamber, I would be suspicious. Yeah. So I think the answer to that one is uh, you've got to be extremely careful. And, and it's not a question of paranoia. Paranoia is when, when you are freaking out and you're, you're seeing new phantoms everywhere. And, um, I think in our society today, um, a little bit of uh, thoughtful caution is, is probably a good idea. Um, and, and I want to ask you on that subject about sort of like the overall, maybe your, your design philosophy um and, and maybe a way of sort of introducing that subject is uh an interesting fact about your life that you had at one point uh something like a two-hour uh I, I don't know lunch or or conversation breakfast, breakfast, breakfast saturday morning breakfast with einstein yeah november 52 um well, my, my mother had done a mosaic portrait of him Okay. And had helped his stepdaughter learn how to do mosaic. My, my mother was a mosaicist. And so I, I called uh, Mrs. Dukas, who was his assistant. And she said, oh, he adores your mother. Will, will, you, will you come by for breakfast? So we had, we had literally two and a quarter hours. We're talking about complexity and cosmology and, and uh, physics and chemistry and, and uh, mathematics. And, and I, I got him to talk about complexity in music. And we were talking about um, uh, basic, basically um, uh, monotonal um, uh, things from the monks in, in uh, the 12th century and, and Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and so on. And uh, Basically, that was the, the meeting where we, we uh, were talking about uh, his belief that everything should be made as simple, but no simpler. Right. And that, that became the motto for, for Multics, for me, and for the 
provably secure thing I did in the 70s and, and for, for Cherry. And the problem there is that if you make it too simple, you're, you've left out an exception condition in, in a programming language, or you've left out something uh, in the hardware that could go wrong, but you didn't think it would ever happen. And I have lots of cases of things where uh, people said, well, that's never going to happen. And, uh, and yet it did. And in some cases, it brought down an airplane or it, or it destroyed uh, something else. Uh, the, the, lots, lots and lots of examples, but there was one example in the first Iraq war where the, um, the guys who were doing a, a rocket launcher um, uh, were targeting it for a remote site. And they, um, um, they ran out of battery. So they put in a new battery and then launched the thing. What they didn't realize was that the default when you load in a new battery is that the, uh, the GPS identifier or the location of, of your target is deleted and the target becomes yourself. Oh. They launch the missile and they blow up their own launch platform. Okay, now the, uh, the vendor would say, well, we knew about that but we didn't think anybody was, was stupid enough to do anything like that. Uh, well, no, they, they uh, even if it had been in the, in the manual, maybe it was in the manual, um, the, uh, um, the situation is one where in the heat of battle, you're not gonna read the manual. And if that's the first time they ever ran out of battery, then that seems like a pretty normal thing to do, don't you think? Just put a new battery and fire away. Okay, now who do you blame? This is the old question, who do you blame? Everybody. Yes, although I would most strongly blame the people who, who built that rocket. Yeah, it should not, it should not default. It should not default to anything. Right. It, should, it should blank out and it should force you to reboot and, and, uh, and start over. I agree, but but you also have to blame the if if in fact it, it had been known to everybody that uh, that was a, a fault mode. Okay, now you you have uh, all kinds of things that have happened in the past where the blame was in fact uh, very widely distributed aircraft problems. Um, is it the software? Is it the hardware? Is it is it the pilot? You always blame the pilot because he's uh, the most likely person. And if that doesn't work, you, you blame the aircraft manufacturer. Um, but I, I tend not to try to put blame on one particular spot. I usually find that there's multiple reasons why this failed. Right, I, and this sort of brings up an interesting topic um, and, and I, I want to put a pin in the, the Einstein conversation and, and bring it back there, especially with regards to the discussion about music, um, yeah. because um, this sort of multidisciplinary uh, approach, or, or at least being able to not so narrowly look at things from purely just an engineering point of view, where you can yeah. imagine an end user. And there's a great book, you might have read it, called like The Design of Everyday Things. And he oh, talked yeah, about absolutely. Yeah. 
like programming a VCR. Like yeah. everybody thought that they were an idiot and you have, you know, trained engineers who are really yeah. smart people who couldn't program their VCR. Yeah. And how's the human interface? I mean, come on, that, that's, uh, you want, you want a, a, fail, a foolproof uh, human interface when you design it. And that in itself is a huge art form. That, yes. that, is, that requires a great deal of engineering, but an understanding of human beings and what they're going to do wrong. Now, I, I like your, your bringing it back to the holistic nature of, of things. Um, Einstein himself was, was a holist. He was a pretty good musician. He was a good second violinist in the string quartet. He played little keyboard. And I, I, I asked him after we'd been talking about uh, complexity, um, I said, what, what about Brahms? Right. And he says, I have never understood Brahms. I believe he was burning some midnight oil, trying to be complicated. Okay. Now Brahms has all of these cross rhythms and, and these uh, uh, two against three and three against four. I, I was playing one uh, this morning that uh, is three against four. And, and the only way you can play that is to let your brain loose and uh, don't try to count. You just let each hand do what it's supposed to do. And it's a Zen kind of a thing. I wrote a, an article long ago, book chapter on Zen and the art of computing mm. and the, the, the good system guy is the guy who has wonderful left brain abilities. He can memorize things. He can, he can analytically derive things and he has great right brain strength, which is intuition and, and uh, uh, in some cases an extreme dislike for formal learning. Um, and uh, you need both in computer design, computer system design, computer programming, and compiler building and all that stuff. You need, you need to be able to dig down as deeply as you need to, but you also need to be able to think in the big picture sense of what's, what's the real, what are the real problems here? Looking outside of the box I, I often say people try to pretend they're looking outside of the box when they don't realize that there's a box. Okay. And the problem is we love to put things in boxes and, and put labels on them and say, this is what it is. Well, when you start to look at um, healthcare, for example, <clears throat> I was reading an article in, in the Sigma Psi Science uh, uh, this morning. Uh, which is talking about uh, is Alzheimer's uh, really the the, uh, the amygdala problem, or is it something else? And um, there's beginning to be feelings that it's something else. And uh, this is an article on on what are the other things that it might possibly be. Uh, it's an immune system compromise. It's a, it could be all sorts of things, but it's also hereditary. So again, when you try to put the blame on one thing, you find that maybe that's not quite the best thing to do. And this, this is, is my, I guess, my holistic view of, of not trying to put things in boxes. And do you think that that's missing from a lot of today's engineers? Like I, I feel um, it, it probably was different just from a cultural perspective 
back in the 60s and 70s where you might have computer scientists reading Proust or, or undergrad students who are uh, really deeply involved in music. But I, I know, at least for people of, of my generation, I, I think that the cultural landscape, not to overgeneralize, but is, is for the most part, much more shallow. Um, yeah. Attention span well, much more limited. When I, when I started this all in 1950, I, my first computer job was 1953, um, it, became very clear to me that uh, one needs to take a, a very holistic view of everything. Because in, in, the 50, in 53, uh, where I started out with, with switching circuits and, and circuit design and, and things like that, um, and then spread out, there were no compilers. There were, there were uh, then the Harvard Mark IV had a hardware compiler. A symbolic interpreter, basically, but uh, not an interpreter, actually a compiler in hardware. Uh, that was a, a, a unique thing. The, the point there was that uh, you try to have a simple understanding of it, and then you discover that uh, you have to look at the big picture. And in, in the 50s, you, could, you, you knew pretty much every paper that had been written. I, I had a, uh, a half brother who spent uh, years documenting every computer that existed in the late 40s. And he, he worked for the Navy and, and they published an annual book on, on the uh, essentially the, the, the uh, complete uh, uh, catalog of every computer. You could do that then. Yeah. And you could also understand hardware and software and, and to the extent that they began to emerge compiler compilers. Um, and you could wrap your arms around much of the field. Today, we have the situation that everybody becomes a super specialist in one thing. Yes. Uh, I, I give you the example of, of quantum computing, where you need physicists and chemists and biologists and, and uh, hardware guys and software guys and, and uh, um, a perspective that says, what is the real problem you're trying to solve? And it's not the pinpoint problem of one, one little piece of that. It's the whole system. And nobody likes to look at the whole system. They all want to say, well, I'm an expert in this one little thing and I'm going to do that yeah. because that's, that's what I'm happy with. And then you get six guys together and they're talking different languages and they can't communicate because they, they don't have a common terminology. The terminology in biology is different from the, common, the, the computer uh, uh, terminology, for example. And uh, so it's, it's very hard to get a team together where everybody in the team is serving as the expert of his own box and yet realizing there's no box because everything is interactive. When you start looking at healthcare, you need to worry about much more than pharmaceuticals. You need to know, worry about all kinds of things that are long-term effects on, on the body. Um, and uh, that is not customary in the medical profession. So I, I think the, the lesson from all of this is that you really have to look at, uh, um, it's very hard to do to look at the whole, the whole picture and yet understand that, that, that there are infinitely deep problems that have to be solved um, in detail. 
and at the same time keeping track of, of the broader picture of where are you trying to go in the first place. And in research, you don't always know where you're trying to go. Yeah. Uh, you, you may discover as you get halfway to where you thought you were going to be that you're on a dead, dead path and there's no point continuing. If you have the insight and the intuition to realize that this is a dead end. <clears throat> on the other hand, many people will mine that path because they still believe that it's, it's going to work. And years later, they'll, they'll say, well, that was, that was not, uh, that was a waste of my effort. Um, so there's, there's a fine line. There's no fine line between the two, uh, but there's a need for both the intuitive and, and the uh, highly analytic. And, and let me ask you something though, because when you talk about a, um, the base of knowledge becoming so great that it almost, it at least seems to require a division of intellectual labor and specialization. Yeah. Is that, hasn't that process been going on for a long time? Like, so yeah, very much, very know. much. Like you, you had, you had uh, chemi chemists and, and, and physicists who knew the other fields. And in some of the cases where there was a real breakthrough, the breakthrough was interstitial in the sense that it, it required knowledge of, of multiple fields. And very often you, you, you're blindsided by the fact that you think you know what's going on in your world and everything else is, is, is not of interest to you. Um, and then you completely miss the fact that there was a much easier way of going at it. Uh, how many times have you actually tried to solve something and then discovered, oh, there's, there's an intuitive solution that completely bypasses all of that and it works. So why am I wasting my time? I don't know, but you don't know until you, until you know. Right. And speaking of Zen, that the idea that you're in your own little world and it's not connected to anything else is a very un-Zen attitude. Right. Well, that was another thing that came out of the Einstein uh, breakfast. I, I asked him, what do you do when you're all tied up in a, in a mathematical, physical problem and you can't get any further? He says, I get up and I go walk in the woods. Hmm. And often when I come back, I was thinking of other things. I would think, aren't the trees nice? The colors of the trees nice in the fall. This was November. Um, uh, I come back and all of a sudden I've got a solution to the problem without having been thinking about it. Right. So it's it's a question of how do you approach things? Do you do you, um, do you focus overly on on one problem, or do you step back a little bit and say, is there another way around it? Is there another thing I can do to, to solve this problem? Or is it in fact the wrong problem? Um, speaking of ways to sort of break out uh, of what you described of, of being almost like locked up, like I, I think everyone's had the experience of looking at a problem too closely almost yeah. and needing to sort of let your mind relax and wander and, and take on a new uh shape or yeah very much um there have been uh I, i've talked to people like uh christoph koch uh you might know who is uh, a neuroscientist who's talked about things like um uh various psychedelics where he made the comparison of 
you're sort of trapped in a, a local uh, minimum or maximum. And that sort of mental state can flatten the curve so that you can just walk totally across it and break out of that local minimum, maximum, go somewhere else on the curve. That might be, you know. It's called a saddle point. Typically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have any, any uh, faith in, in those sorts of. Uh... I think, I think the point there is that you may think you have a saddle point where things are stable. And then there's a, a local um, maximum way, way somewhere else. Uh, that is the thing you're really looking for. And you're, if you're happy with the saddle point, that, that means that you are not looking at the whole problem. Um, no, I, I, I think the LSD thing was, was something that was um, experimented on extensively in, in the um, uh, 70s, 80s. Um, there were, I know people who in fact, uh, uh, one of my former colleagues uh, was doing an experiment uh, with a professor at Stanford um, on, could you be more creative under LSD? Right. And uh, he claimed that he had been able to solve a, 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 a as yet unsolved mathematical problem while he was on LSD. Now, there are a lot of problems there because your focus is probably completely different when, when you are hallucinating like crazy. I have never done this, so I, I don't know, but I, my guess is that it's, um, uh, it's something that, uh, that it could be intuition without being uh, the LSD, it just it loosened your mind enough that you were able to see that there was another way of solving the problem than the one that you've been trying and, and didn't get anywhere with. Um, I, I suspect that uh, there's a combination of things as always, uh, but that uh, is something that I personally have no right. uh, a real uh, understanding of. And uh, I suspect that uh, there are some people who would, would survive it and others who would uh, be uh, terribly upset by it. Yes. Oh, I, I, I don't think it's worth uh, pursuing that one at all right here. Fair, fair enough. Um, we're, we're almost at, at, at an hour here, so I, I don't want to uh, take up any more of your time. You've been very generous with that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you before I uh, let you go, um, and this is kind of a, a, a pet cause of mine, so you, you might not have a strong opinion on it, but um, since we're speaking about sort of the intersection of disciplines, the humanities and uh, engineering. Um, do you at all, uh, as someone who's clearly has a, a, a formal knowledge of music um, with uh, an artistic discipline like literature, where the novel was not possible until you had a printing press um, to, to create and distribute them. A, a new literary form was created out of this technology. Yeah. And obviously the internet has been compared to the printing press many times over. Do you think that uh, there are possibilities of new literary forms? And I'm not saying eBooks, but forms of literature that are only possible because of this new technology. Has that ever 
interesting. Yeah, I, I have I have been around this problem uh, for years. I'm actually a published poet, uh, but uh, several of the poems are, in fact, uh, what are known as concrete poems. And this was in in combination with a poet named Emmett Williams, and we used to do uh, uh, things that uh, with with Charlotte Mormon, who was known as the topless cellist, uh, when I was at Bell Labs, and um, we did two things with with her. Um, she usually had a, um, a parade down Central Park West. Uh, one of them, she was playing the cello with uh, floating on helium balloons. And uh, I had a, uh, a two mile long poem that was uh, being exuded by my, my colleague friend Emmett out of the back of my station wagon uh, of fanfold paper. Yeah. Uh, and it had this, this sort of this poem, undulating poem in five languages. Uh, uh, that was supposed to actually wound up the, the printer jammed and we, we wound up with a, 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 another version of it. <clears throat> um, and then I have a couple of published things. We, we did a, a piece for uh, uh, the anniversary of the uh, death of Guillaume Apollinaire. Um, and this, this is a um, <clears throat> uh, taking one of his poems and using it as the, the, the text for a, a huge, uh, like a 12 foot banner that uh, was displayed in a, in, a, uh, in a gallery in London for the event of the, of the anniversary. And this was a, a sort of a diamond shape where his poetry was, was inside of the um, diamond. And when you ran the diamonds together to create the letters, uh, it spelled all kinds of things that were, were uh, different. And one of the poems was, um, uh, we need new sounds, new sounds, new sounds. And if you read across the, the diamond, you got all sorts of new sounds. It was wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I also did a, um, uh, with Fred Brooks and, and uh, 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 Bill Wright and uh, one of my other colleagues, Al Hopkins, who wound up designing the Apollo guidance computer after he became after he got out of graduate school. Uh, we we did some uh, musical composition uh, in the Harvard Mark IV back in uh, the fifties, uh, where we were composing new hymn tunes based on a, a Markov uh, analysis of uh, the the sequence of eighth notes and in common meter hymn tunes. Uh, Fred and, and Bill had taken a, a 37 common meter hymn tunes and come up with a complete uh, diagram, trigram, up to uh, eight grams um, of all of the 37 common meter hymn tunes. And Al and I then a year later uh, generated 636 new hymn tunes with varying degrees of, uh, of uh, Markov chain uh, uh, statistical uh, um, basis. And so, yeah, there are lots of things that have gone on. I mean, there, there were folks writing, uh, generating, uh, at, when I was at Bell Labs, uh, Max Matthews and, and some of his friends were, were generating uh, uh, music from the computer. And that was, that was really interesting, what you get, the, the 
famous one was, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, well, for the love of you, and so on. Um, and there's a whole recording of, of that. Uh, some of the computer generated sound. So I've, I've lived through, um, uh, and in fact, I, I once did a, um, uh, a, a, an art exhibit for, for the Summit Art Center, uh, where we had uh, sound, computer sounds, computer music, computer uh, graphics. And that was, that was somewhere in, in the, uh, the 60s. Um, so I, I, I played around with some crazy stuff over the years. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, of new, uh, new things. Uh, all, all of the recent uh, synthetic music is, is a fine example of, of what's emerged from what was originally very, very uh, annoying. Uh, one of the things at Bell Labs was this infinitely uh, ascending or descending scale uh, where as, as the scale goes down chromatically, you're phasing out one frequency and bringing in the new frequency. Right. And so it sounded like it was an ever descending scale. It was, it was beautifully done. Nice, nice piece of, uh, of engineering. And you, you would be absolutely convinced that this thing was continually going down. And yet it was just a continuous loop. Hmm. But it was beautifully done. So I, I think uh, there's tons of stuff that have happened since then. Now that, that was just way I was. It was great fun to be part of some of the early stages. Yeah, of, of that. I can. Uh, but I think what's happening is is we're we're getting new forms. We're, uh, I'm not sure. I like a lot of the the, the, the new uh, classical music, uh, but uh, occasionally you get uh, throwbacks. Uh, yesterday I was listening to Pulcinella followed by the Stravinsky, uh, uh, the, the first little tiny symphony he wrote, uh, the simple symphony. And both of those were throwbacks. Stravinsky writing in the style of the 15th century and, and uh, uh, Palestrina, and, uh, and the other one writing in, in, in an older style as well. So um, there are throwbacks and there are future attempts where you would try to get into the, into the new thing, like 12-tone music in, in the early 1900s uh, was an attempt to get away from all of the, the classical stuff. And if you think about all the years of, of, of change, um, as, as we did with, with Einstein, um, going from the Gregorian chant to, the, uh, to Bach and, and Fuse and, and uh, Mozart, it kept get, getting more complicated. So the, the fact that, that uh, you can make something that looks simple, but is in fact masking all of the complexity that is needed is sort of the crux to this whole discussion. And we, we did that in, in this thing we did in the 70s, uh, where each specification at hierarchical levels uh, was sort of a complete specification of what happened at that level. And then there were mappings from one layer to the next. And in principle, you could prove properties from the bottom layer all the way up to the top because everything was specified. But one of the problems is you can't specify some of the stuff that's going on below you. 
on, on, in the same layer. You, you can't uh, have one specification top layer that specifies everything that's got to go on down below. So you do it layer by layer by layer. And then you show how one layer depends on the lower layers. And that's a problem. That's a, uh, a creative way of solving some of these problems. But it's not one that you will find in most commercial products. Right. Uh, very, very simply, uh, you're stuck with the, the legacy of the entire past of everything you've ever done. And everybody who's going to buy your stuff wants to, it to be compatible with, with everything that's gone before. And that is a, uh, that's like having a blindfold on and not being able to uh, uh, see where you're going. Um, the beauty in, in, in the cherry architecture to get back to that is that you actually have the ability to run legacy code uh, unrecompiled or recompiled. And if you getting back to your, your C code problem, if you recompile it where all of the C pointers are converted into cherry capabilities, then a lot of your memory management problems go away. So that sort of wraps up the beginning and the end. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's all you, uh, I notice you don't normally run too far over the hour. I, I mean, I, I'm open to it, but I, I try not to strain people's attention too much. Well, I'm still going, but, but the audience may not have any clue as to what we're talking about. Uh, your philosophers aren't going to see much in, in this except for some of the, uh, the holistic thinking. Uh, your uh, economists aren't going to care much at all about it. Uh, your geneticists are, are going to say, well, maybe there's a, a little something there about the me medical uh, alternatives that we hadn't thought about before. But uh, I am a holist and I will remain a holist. And there's a thing on my uh, website about, uh, uh, I've been, I, would, I was once called the designated holist because in, in many conversations, I'm the guy who says, yes, but you're not looking at the big problem. So this is, this is one of my shticks, I guess, that, uh, uh, that to me, uh, the point solution to a point problem is probably not going to solve the big problem. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, okay. And the, I, I, I think people will appreciate this for sure. I, I hope so. But again, it, it, turned, it turned out to be much more of, of a specialist thing than a generalist thing. Although I've, I've tried to keep popping up into the, into the generalities. And again, if you don't understand the generalities and you don't understand the details, you lose. There you go. Uh, okay. Peter, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Good. Thank you to Peter Newman and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.